House of Mystery presents Inside Writing, the radio show where authors discuss their writing process in all genres. Welcome back into the House of Mystery, and of course, I'm Al Warren. Now, today, um, we have uh, New York Times best-selling author, and um, it's got a fairly recent book out, just came out at the end of June here on the 21st, and it's called The Lies I Tell. So, Julie Clark, thank you for being on the show. Thank you so much for having me. So, uh, you, you've got a few books out here, and I guess The Last Flight was quite the... Uh, big novel for you that kind of uh, broke, as we say. Um, How did you get into writing? Um, You know, I always wanted to be a writer. When I was little, I would write stories. Fiction was always a place that I used to escape. I would go to libraries. I would frequent bookstores. It was always the weekend treat to go to the bookstore and buy a bunch of books. Um, And so I would read books and I would always think like, I want to write books like that, you know, but then you grow up and you realize like a creative fiction uh, writing degree is not exactly um, what you want to pin your financial hopes on as a 20 something year old. And so, you know, life kind of takes over and you, you know, I fell into teaching and, and have been a teacher for the last 25 years And it wasn't until my early 40s that I really took a step back and thought, you know, is this the only thing that I really want to do in my life? And the writing, the writing idea had never really gone away. I'm a voracious reader still, many books a week. Um, and, And I was still getting that pang of like, I want to write something. I want to write something. And so I did. I just, I think when I was like 43 or 44, I started writing a book and um, I didn't really tell anybody that I was writing. I just kind of did it for myself to see if I could do it. You know, you hear stories about people who, you know, start books, but never finish them. And I didn't know whether that would be me or not. And so I wrote a book, finished the book, revised the book, tried to get an agent with that book and could not. Um, so then I had a different idea for another book and I knew that I had been able to write one book. So clearly I know how to do it. Um, I just didn't know yet how to do it well. And so it just took a little bit of time. And, um, my second book that I wrote turned out to be my debut, The Ones We Choose, which released in 2018. And then of course the last flight in 2020 and now the lies I tell in 2022. So here I am. Yeah. Was there a particular incident or something that kind of drove you to actually writing a story because there's there's always that part of of a writer that kind of goes well you know i want to write and they write Mm -hmm. but there's there has to be something else that kind of causes you to actually try to let the world see it like send it out talk to a publisher or agents and stuff and try to get your work out in the public, like there must be, because that, that's kind of the big step that a lot of people don't take. Yeah. I mean, I just kind of felt like I had spent so many hours doing that, that I felt like, you know, it would be not wasted time because I'm always a believer of like that time would have passed anyway. And it was a good, enjoyable use of my time. It's not like I hated every minute of it. Um, But I sort of felt like, you know, I'm a teacher. I am, you know, barely making ends meet. I might as well see if I can make some money, you know. And so it was really about, like, seeing if I could actually turn this into a second career for myself. 
Yeah. And, and it's funny when you say you go to the library or you did to, um, kind of escape in a sense, or you kind of were into that. Mm-hmm. Um, d- did you not like real people? I do. I'm definitely an introvert for sure. I def- I get overloaded sometimes with social interactions and need time to recover. Um, but I mean, I do like people, but you know, the thing about books is that it allows you to travel and be a million different people without ever, you know, leaving your chair, wherever that chair may be, whether it be at a library or whether it be at home, um, I just, it's, it was magical to me. It was magical that I could go to many different times and places and experience things that I would never experience in real life. Um, and so to be able to do that for readers is a gift. Now, when, when the last flight came out, um, it was a pretty big success. Mm-hmm. And how did that um, affect you? Like, how do, how do you find that you reacted to that? Uh, mostly astonished, you know, like I, I really felt strongly about that book. I felt like it was, it had a great hook. I felt like there was an audience for it, but with publishing, you can have a fantastic book with a fantastic hook. That's very well written. And the book can still flop for no, for no reason other than the way the market is or the way, you know, the publisher promotes it or doesn't. And so having a fantastic book doesn't necessarily guarantee that you're going to have a hit. Um, you know, anybody in publishing will tell you that, like, it's, it's, it, it's not a guarantee. So it was a relief. I was astonished um, at the level of, of attention that the book got and, and just overjoyed. You know, it's what you dream of as a writer when you sit down and you toil those hours every morning um, for years that that you will get to that moment so it was wonderful uh, for me myself when 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 i did the very first book and um for a publisher and it and um it was just a short read part of a series mm-hmm. and the first week i i they sold 44,000 copies that's incredible and uh, yeah and it, and it scared me <laughs> I don't know. I don't know if you had that feeling, but all of a sudden I became because I, I, I kind of didn't expect it. And mm-hmm. and I'm not sure that I wanted it, if that makes sense, because yeah. now now there's the point where you're like, oh, um, <laughs> now what? I mean, because how do you how do you follow up? Because, you know, yeah. all of a sudden everything I do, I'm I'm worried that, oh, they're going to compare it, you know, because Above Suspicion was that book. And they're going to turn around and go, well, it, this is OK, but it's not Above Suspicion. You know what I mean? Like yeah. that people do that, not in a bad way. It's just, it's just a yeah. reaction. Yeah. I mean, it's their right to say, I prefer this book over that book. You know, I mean, I do it myself with books that I know that I love by authors that I love. You know, I, I liked this book, but I didn't like it as much as that book. You know, I mean, it's what we do as a writer. I think you kind of have to let go of that. You can't, you know, you, all you can do is try to try to do the very best that you can do. And I think also understand that you can't recreate that magic for whatever book that was, that was magical. Like, I think it's a mistake to try to tap into that again in the same way, in the same vein, you know, like I think that you can take some of the things that you know worked and try to turn it into something new. But I think if you're trying to live up to whatever a book was, I think, I think that's 
that's where you sort of lose your creative vision of what else you can do. That might be different and even better, you know? Yeah. Yeah. It, it certainly takes away your attention. It takes your, it, it, it directs your focus to something that isn't really about writing anymore. So yeah. Yeah. I will say that it's a learned thing, but now I'm old. Yes. It doesn't matter. I, I, I've learned that, but <laughs> the, the lies I tell. So, um, when you, when you were putting this together, did you think about the last flight at all, or was it even on your mind? I mean, I did, you know, I, I obviously knew that, you know, I, I actually wanted to stay away from a dual POV, dual timeline book. I thought that was really, really hard. I don't want to do that again. Um, and then, of course, that's sort of what I ended up with. You you realize at some point, like, no, I'm going to need to do that again. Okay. Um and, you know, I did it a little bit differently this time, but I do feel like, um, you know, every book you write sort of informs the next book as well. Not not necessarily just the topic or the subject matter, but also the process. Every book is different, but I also think that there are things that work that, you know, like, OK, that really worked for me last time as far as how to get this story out, when to get this story out and like how to organize my thoughts, my ideas, my drafting. I think that, you know, every book gets a little bit, gets a little bit easier, not necessarily in a, in a, in a, I've got this down, I can crank them out, you know, every three months, like not like that, but just sort of, you know, what works for you and what doesn't work for you. And you can save yourself some time by not trying those things that didn't work. Yeah. Yeah. It's a learning process. Yeah. So, so with this new book, um, how did you come up with the premise or the idea? So let's maybe talk about the basic premise of it. And then where did that come from? Uh, so the lies I tell is the story of Meg Williams, who's a female con artist traveling the country under assumed names. She's creating elaborate backstories to back up whatever lies she's telling in order to, you know, con specific people that she has targeted. Her goal isn't necessarily to get rich, although that's a nice byproduct of what she does. But her goal is really to build the skills that she will need to be able to go home and take down the man who she believes destroyed her childhood, stole her family home, um, landed her living in her car right out of high school. She really blames this person for kind of the destruction of her life and derailing it completely. But what she doesn't know is that there's an investigative reporter named Kat Roberts in Los Angeles waiting for her to return. And Kat has her own idea of revenge. She was collateral damage on a con that Meg pulled many years ago. And Kat is going to infiltrate Meg's life under an assumed name with an elaborate backstory that none of it is true. And as the two women sort of circle each other with their lies and see who can hook who into whatever scheme she's got going, you're never really sure, like, what the con is and who the true target is. Uh, so where, where does that come from? Like, did you know someone like this character or did you just get the idea from something that you saw or someone you'd met or. I, um, I got the idea. I was listening to a podcast called who the hell is Hamish, which is about this Australian man who would, you know, charming and engaging and dynamic. And he would get these women to fall in love with him. And then he would tell them about these like $50,000 investments that, you know, can't lose. Right. And I remember I was listening to it and I'm thinking like, first of all, who falls for this? And second, um, 
I think a woman could do this better. I think a woman would be a better con artist than a man because we're a little, we're, we're less threatening. I think in a lot of ways we don't, when we approach people, we don't send up the same alarm signals that, you know, sometimes get sent up with men. Um, and so at that point, I just started thinking about a female con artist and why she might be conning people. And, you know, it's never really interesting if she's a sociopath, um, just out to take advantage of people. So I wanted to give her a backstory that helped sort of put her grifting into context, I think for readers a little bit. So, you know, she lives in this morally gray area where she's doing bad things, but she's doing them for what she believes are the right reasons. And the reader can kind of see that and understand that and still root for her, even though she's doing bad things. So how do you, um, work with your characters for instance this one this is your main character here how is it that you experience her is this a sort of a, a visual do you, is it like a movie to you or is it like a voice in the head like how do you um do this it's probably more visual for me i mean i definitely always approach it from like as a reader what is it that i want like, what would i want right here and right now you know what i mean and so that to me is really where I start. And then, um, and then I kind of go from there and then I start kind of backtracking and thinking about like, what's her backstory? What's, you know, some of the baggage that she carries, what are some of her heartbreaks? What are some of her triumphs? What did she struggle with? What was high school like for her? You know, these are some of the things that I need to know as the writer so that when she's on the page for you, um, you get a sense of all of all of that life that she's lived. So she feels three dimensional. It's interesting. So when you experience this and you're going through and you're writing this, this character, um, do they sometimes go in a direction you probably didn't see coming? Sometimes. I mean, I generally know going into a book sort of what my opening scene is. And it's very visual for me. I can get the sense of like what it looks like, what it sounds like. And I generally know sort of like what the big twist is in the middle. And then I have a very clear idea about what I want my last scene to be. And once I get that into place, I can kind of write toward those things. Um, things change, obviously, as you're writing relationships between characters need to change and grow and morph and that's not working. So I've got to go back and make them less friendly or more friendly. Um, and so do things do change. I don't know that like my characters go off on some kind of, you know, journey and I'm the follower just taking down. Like, I, I don't, I don't see it as I'm their scribe, but I more see it as like, um, I know how a book needs to work. And I need to figure out the plot to make that happen. And so sometimes I've got to take things out, rewrite things, move things around. Um, if there's some big conflict between two characters, I know it needs to happen at a certain point. And so I have to write toward that versus just like feeling it, sensing, you know what I mean? Like it's not always an intuitive thing. Sometimes it's like very concrete, like something needs to happen here. Yeah, that's interesting. I see it that way too. But, um, I, you know, because I'm primarily nonfiction and a the, the lot of the writers we've talked to on the show are fiction. And I get a, uh, a lot of people that say, you know, they describe their characters as if they're like their children or family yeah. or friends and stuff like that. D do you have a description or an idea or how, how do you see your characters? 
I mean, I definitely see them as some people I I've, I've invented them. So it's almost like they're my children, right? Like sometimes I don't always, you know, agree with what they're what they're doing, but I need them to be doing these things in order to accomplish these plot goals that I have for them, you know. And so, you know, in thinking about the theme, like they're there to serve the theme of the book and and you know, their my goal is to present people who are compelling and interesting and flawed and complicated, you know, someone that you'd want to spend time with for 300 plus pages. And so, you know, in order to do that, they have to be real to me. Definitely. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, I always find it. Uh, yeah. It's kind of a strange thing. when people, It is weird. Yeah. <laughs> you know, worry about people, you know, hearing voices and stuff, right? You no, know. no voices in my head, but I do. <laughs> you don't wake <laughs> up with a shovel in your hand. Yeah. Yeah. No, <laughs> nothing like that. Nothing like that. But I do. I mean, they are, you know, they are with me all, all day long, every day. You know, I am thinking about them a lot as I'm walking the dog, as I'm washing the dishes, as I'm, walking the aisles of the supermarket, you know, I am thinking about things, even when I'm not really aware that I'm thinking about them. I'm still thinking about them. Well, that's funny. You know, if you're in, so you're in the supermarket and, and you're shopping and then you're thinking sort of about maybe a character and, you know, where they're going to go or how they develop or whatever, you're kind of going through Mm -hmm. something and stuff. Do you think that where you are sometimes affects how you're going to write that character then? I definitely think so. And I also believe very strongly that if you stay open to ideas, um, solutions will appear for you. So if you're having a plot problem or you're having a character problem and you don't really know how you're going to resolve something, like just open up your mind and go out into the world and see sort of what the universe offers up to you. Um, And that to me, you know, has been always a surprise. It sounds a little woo, but I also just think like, you know, the right podcast will land in your lap when you need it, you know, and the right, the right idea will occur to you if you stay open to it, which might require you to completely take out chapter two and make chapter two, chapter 12, which is like, nobody wants to do that, but sometimes that's what you have to do. Yeah. Yeah. You, you kind of have to go with it, but, but you're an outliner. It sounds like, so you, you kind of outline the story, you kind of know the beginning, middle, end sort of idea, and you kind of fill it in. Is that correct? Yeah. yeah. I mean, I'd say it's a very it's a very loose outline. And I have tried to be a little bit more like chapter one is this, chapter two is this, chapter three is this. And I have a tendency, if I do that, then I feel like I'm too locked in to my first idea. And I know, and I'm sure you know, too, like your first idea is never your best idea. It's just your first idea. And so by writing everything down like that, then I have a hard time breaking away from that to let the magical things happen that happen as you're drafting a book. So I I have a loose idea of beginning and end and middle, and then the rest is pretty, pretty wide open as I write. Yeah. Yeah. It's pretty interesting. Um, your sub your supporting characters so are are they developed the same way or do you have sort of are you just find them in a coffee shop type thing or you're kind of going along and you pick up something or where do they come from same i mean you know sometimes so so for the lies i tell you know meg williams was the character my con artist that came to me first And then as you know, when you're thinking about a book, you're thinking, okay, well, somebody needs to be after her. Well, what would be, what would be like the worst thing for Meg 
to have the worst kind of person for Meg to be after her. I mean, I guess the police would be pretty bad, but I didn't really want to write a police procedural. That was sort of not my interest. I love reading them, but I'm not really interested in writing one. So I thought, okay, so not the police who could be, um, why not, why not a former, maybe a former victim or maybe somebody who was an accidental victim, right? I didn't want Meg to recognize her or know her in any way. Um, and so, you know, at that point, you know, Kat became an investigative reporter who's going to use all of her skills that she's learned to sort of take Meg down. And, you know, she's imagining, you know, like a Ronan Farrow type of like expose in, in the New Yorker or the Atlantic or something where she could really make a name for herself you know, and reclaim what was stolen from her. And so, you know, those are the things that that come to you as you're starting to think about a new book and, okay, who are the people going to, who, how am I going to populate this new book with people, what kind of people are going to be in it and what is it that they all want and what is it that they all We at Wondery, creators of Dr. Death, Scamfluencers and Over My Dead Body, go deeper into complex true crime stories to give you an inside look at the facts. And now we're launching the ultimate true crime fan destination, Exhibit C. It's truly criminal. Wondery's Exhibit C gives you the detective's lens of all of the evidence, taking you step-by-step through the twists and turns of each true crime case. Join the Exhibit C online community to access exclusive show merchandise, member-only content, and to hear directly from top criminal and social justice experts, witnesses, and investigators as they take us beyond the evidence and into the case file. Join now by following Wondery Exhibit C on Facebook or find us on the web at WonderyExhibitC.com and listen to true crime podcasts on Wondery and Amazon Music. Exhibit C. It's truly criminal. Need and those two things absolutely have to be different, you know, and Meg's wants and needs need to be in conflict with cats. Wow. Um, so, you know, at the, at the end of the day, so someone comes and picks up the lies I tell mm-hmm. and they read it. Mm-hmm. So under that entertainment value and, and the story, um, what is it you want them to take away? Or is there something? I mean, I always want readers to take away something from my books. It's sort of, you know, I can't finish writing a book until I know what it's really about. And it's never about like being a con artist is fun. You know, no, it's about bigger themes of, you know, female empowerment and how do we balance the scales in a society that is weighted against us? Um how is it that women can prop each other up instead of tear each other down, you know, and Megan Kat sort of approached these questions uh, from the, from different places. And yet at the same time, I think they would both agree that they're actually on the same page when it comes to things like that. You know, they both have been victims. They both have been traumatized. And a lot of it has to do with, you know, when women don't look out for other women or, you know, powerful men who take advantage of their position in the world. And so kind of balancing the scales of karma, I think I think most readers in the world today, not even just female readers, but readers in general, see a lot of injustice out in the world that doesn't ever seem to get balanced. You know, we're all waiting for karma to hit this person or that person and karma can take a really long time. And so, you know, to have a character like Meg Williams come along, who's balancing those scales in the way that she knows how and in a way that she's very good at, um, it's it's delightful, you know. So, 
Huh. I, I, I wonder, so do you, do you feel like, um, do you feel a little bit of pressure when you write with some big subtext like that? Do you feel a little bit of pressure to make sure you're doing it justice and not really upsetting anyone? Yeah. I mean, I think you have to walk a fine line and I don't know that my books are for everybody, but I also, you know, overwhelmingly get messages from readers all over the country, all over the world, actually, that are thanking me for, you know, giving them a voice. And I would say even with the last flight, you know, the demographic that really responded to my book was not just women. It was men as well. A lot of men, a lot of male readers loved that book. And so I would expect and have seen so far the same the same kind of split that that it isn't it isn't just a female story for women it's about empowerment in general and it's about taking your power back when somebody in a position of power has taken it from you right i think uh, we've all experienced that but but you, you um ooh, see because that's a, that, it's a fine line on how 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 you take it back right i'd imagine yeah i mean you know I, and i would say that like not really anybody that I know would take it back the way that Meg is taking it back, you know, <laughs> yeah, that's, that's the fun part of fiction though, you know, is that you can go along for that ride and, you know, it's like the secret fantasy that everybody has of like, Oh, you know, someday, someday that person will, you know, get their just desserts or whatever it is. And I think that, you know, it's not just, sometimes people don't want to wait. And so it's, it's fun to watch a character do that, you know, cause we can't really. Right. It's just sort of at the point where um, some of you is in the character. Cause every writer said, you know, there, yeah. there's, there's always something. So it's just kind of like what you would like to do. Let's say if you were her or maybe something in real life. Sometime. I mean, no, because <laughs> <laughs> I would, I would be a terrible con artist. I'm a horrible liar. Um, I am honest to a fault and I do believe in karma. And so, you know, I'm not, I don't think that it is my responsibility to, you know, enact revenge or justice or whatever that is. We have systems in place for that, but that doesn't mean that there isn't a part of me that wouldn't delight in seeing that happen, you know? Yeah. I mean, yeah. (laughs) Um, It's the fun part of it, right? Right. Right. Uh, So do you like the whole new world, like the um, social media and the, the aspect where so many people can be in touch with you so quickly, like, um, Um, you know, I'm wary of it. I mean, you know, I wrote a whole book about how social media can be used to target you. Um, But I also think that, you know, it's a necessary tool for authors at this point. You know, it's something that we have to do. It's hard. It's very hard. I've been on the road for two weeks in, you know, 15 different events. And um, so it's been challenging to stay on top of social media when you're busy with other things. And, you know, I'm a parent as well and and a teacher. And so it's a lot to juggle sometimes. I have to just say, like, I can't, I can't manage that right now. And I think that sometimes we also have access to more information than our human lizard brains can process. And that's not necessarily a good thing. Um, You know, we just can't, there's so much information that it's almost impossible for us to sort of sort it and parse it and figure out what it all means because it comes at us so, so fast. 
Yeah, and so many different directions. Do you do do you follow up on on like uh, reviews and things like that? Are you mindful of what goes on around your books? I try to be. Um, I'm not a big reader of my reviews. I learned early on that um, in order to focus on the work that I can control, I can't start focusing on other people's feelings about my books. I mean, I appreciate every good review that I get and, you know, try to respond as best I can when, you know, it's directed at me. Um, but like, I'm not, I'm not looking on Amazon at my reviews. I'm not looking on Goodreads for my, at my reviews. I just, it's just a hole that, that, you know, you'd never come out of. And so, you know, my belief is that the reviews are for readers to help each other find books that they will enjoy. And, um, you know, that's sort of the guideposts for them. Um, reviews don't necessarily inform how I'm working on my next book. So it's not really something I really have to do kind of live inside a tunnel when I'm working on a project. And so, you know, trying to trying to keep out all the distractions and all the noise of of hype can be can be challenging at times. Now, that's that's interesting, because when you talk about distractions and noise, so when you sit down to write, can you assign times? Can you kind of go, okay, listen, it's Saturday and there's nobody home, no school. I got nothing to do for four hours here. Can mm-hmm. you just sort of sit down and go, okay, <laughs> I'm going to yeah. write starting at 11. You sit down, go and just write. And yeah. can you, you can do that. Yeah. I mean, I have to with everything else going on in my life. Like if I don't carve out that time to write, then it's just not ever going to happen. It, you know, if I waited until I felt like writing, um, I just never would, you know, you have to, you have to treat it like a job and then you have to show up at the job. Yeah. But you know, so when there's things going on, like I, I, I think I can, I can relate in the sense that, you know, I've got a lot going on and you're kind mm-hmm. of just trying to do things, but, and you can balance that while you write, but when there's unusual things, like, for instance, in the last couple of years, all the crazy stuff going on, you know, the, yeah. um, you know, I, what, I could go a hundred places with that, you know, from, from politics to, yeah. you know, to the pandemic and, and masks and no masks and vaccines being mm-hmm. Bill Gates and all this stuff, you know, all this stuff flying around outside of your door and everywhere you look, does that, does that, ever affect you or your way of writing? I definitely think it seeps into the things that I write and the themes that I try to tackle. You know, I mean, um, I, I feel like you can't, you can't live your life in a vacuum, but I also try to be very protective of my writing time so that when I sit down to write, it really is about the story at the time and not letting outside things sort of seep into to distract me and drag me into places that I don't have time to go. There's other times of the day where I allow myself to go those places, but my writing time is usually first thing in the morning, uh, very, very early. And it's pretty protected. I don't, I don't veer too much away from it. Yeah. I, I, I just wonder, but like if, if things are stressful and tense, you know, like you, something really negative, if you think that um, maybe, that will come out and maybe some of your characters. 
Maybe. I mean, you know, it's really hard to know where my characters come from in the sense that, you know, they don't evolve fully formed on the page from day one. They evolve over time. I'm getting to know them as I'm creating them. And if there are certain things that are happening in the news cycle that might fit with what I am trying to say as well, I may use it. Um, You know, I definitely think that Meg and Kat are both current characters for our times. And that is definitely informed by what's happening in the world today. Yeah. 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 It's crazy. Um, How much do you think of your own life? Do you put into this? Uh, Very little. I mean, I'm not a con artist. I'm not an investigator. No, but I I was thinking more like, okay, so your life is in your teacher and you're all this. How much of your own experience do you think that runs into it? Not necessarily you, as in personality yeah i mean i think like you know every time my character is faced with a crossroads every time they need to make a decision you know i have to stop and think like what would i do how would i how would i react to this what what decisions would i make now for meg i would probably then do the opposite of what i what i would (laughs) you know and so um but that's the fun of writing characters that aren't me you know, but, but what would I do is always the first question. How would I feel in this moment right now? And sometimes I can use it and sometimes I have to be the opposite. Yeah. Yeah. I see, you know, um, well, so what are you working on now? Uh, it's pretty early days, but it's about a family murder in 1975 and how, um, how it's kind of playing out in this family decades later. Oh, do, do these these types of book take a lot out of you? Like when you're going through something like that or something that's pretty, um, I mean, that sounds like it could be kind of deep and a little bit um, disturbing. So when you're, when you're doing that, do you, do you find it takes a toll on you? Um, it doesn't because, you know, for me, it's not about the murder. It's about the characters and how that murder impacts their lives moving forward, which I find to be a much more interesting and also kind of less scary space. Um, you know, bad things happen to everybody in every family. We have bad things that have happened, not necessarily murder, but illness, you know, death, you know, trauma of any kind. And so for me as a writer, I'm not really interested in focusing on that trauma itself as much as I'm interested in focusing on the aftermath of the trauma and how it has a ripple effect into people's lives many, many years later. Wow. So um, how do you like people to find you (laughs) or do you, Uh, I mean, like, like, do you have a website? How are you? I have a website, (laughs) julieclarkauthor.com. Um, I have, I'm on Instagram. Mostly that's my main platform, Instagram. So Julie Clark author on Instagram. I am on Facebook at Julie Clark books. Um, but less so, I mean, it's a, it's pretty much a duplicate of whatever's on Instagram. Um, And that's pretty much it. I mean, I'm, I'm on Twitter peripherally, but not really, not really for a lot of book promotion. Well, fantastic. Of course, we're going to have that up on our website and all the locations for people to find you. So, um, well, that's, that's great. So where do you see yourself going with all this? Like it's sort of come late in your life and you're kind of doing well. Do, do, yeah. What's happening? I mean, Are you going to quit featuring and live on luxury now? Or <laughs> All the authors <laughs> in the audience are laughing. Yeah. <laughs> 
Um, I think, no, um, you know, I like teaching. I like the job. I like working with kids. It's a really good distraction for publishing. I think, you know, when you go into a classroom and you need to figure out how, you know, this kid or that kid is going to learn how to do long division, like it pretty much takes up all your time and all your mental space. And, um, it's great. It's a really great place to go and forget about plot problems and publishing problems and promotion problems. It's a great place to go and kind of step away from social media for six hours a day. Um, and sort of it's, it's refreshing, you know, it's energizing in a different way that writing is. So I'm lucky that I get to do two jobs that I love equally in different ways. You know, you could probably give good advice for someone that say that, that they are writing. They haven't, published or they haven't been to an agent they're not they're not they haven't maybe because they're scared or maybe they're not sure and maybe maybe because they are a little older maybe they're in their 30s or early 40s and sort of kind of going well it's too late you know and stuff like that what what kind of um things would you tell them that were the best pieces of advice for yourself and how you did it um i think the best piece of advice came from a book written by Sandra Schofield, who wrote a book called The Scene Book, which kind of helps you sort of narrow in on scenes and make them impactful and powerful. Um, but I actually got the writing advice from her introduction before she even like started talking about scenes. And it basically said, um, you know, in order to publish your book, you need to do th two things. Number one, you need to think of yourself as a worker. And number two, you need to show up at the job. I mean, that's really all it is, is being persistent and consistent and doing it every day as if it were a paid job and eventually it will be a paid job. Do you think it's important to have a good editor or a good person to, um, that you can trust that can kind of go through? Absolutely. And, yeah. Yes. yes. I mean, I have readers, writer friends who are readers for me. I read for them. Um, and their input and I is critical, critical, critical. So absolutely. And if you can't, if you don't know where to find those people, I would suggest, you know, Facebook groups is a great place. You can find writer groups on Facebook. They're all over the place. Um, if you are female or female identifying, the binders group is a great is a great place that's still around on Facebook for lots of different different pockets of 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 writing. Um, but you can do, you know, online classes where you'll meet other people sort of at your stage of writing where you can find a critique partner. I mean, that's where I found my very first critique partner in a UCLA extension class that I took. So, um, you know, and, and, and just building your community. Yeah. Who are your favorite people then? Like who who um, give you inspiration? They don't have to be writers, just just people out there that um, always kind of lift you up. Uh, that I know, or just like in general? Well, uh, in general, like um, they don't have to be personal, but just people like uh, maybe a, a singer or an actor or maybe a writer. Um, I would say that for me, my writing influences were definitely Barbara Kingsolver. I read everything that she wrote. Um, she actually wrote a book of nonfiction like essays about um it's called high tide in tucson and there was a chapter in there about how in other countries they um they they all kind of pitch into parent other people's children in a way that we don't here in the u.s and and that essay really inspired me to actually go back and teach many many years ago and so 
Um, I would definitely say Barbara Kingsolver is one. I would say Anna Quindlin is another one. Um, some of her parenting essays that she's written have been spot on. Um, and her fiction also is just beautiful, beautiful. So I would say probably those two are the biggest sort of creative influences that I've had. Well, that's fantastic, you know. Well, um, we really appreciate coming on the show. Now, the book is called The Lies I Tell, and it's a novel. And our guest has been the author, Julie Clark. Thanks very much. Thank you so much for having me. You've been listening to the House of Mystery radio show. To find out more about our guests, hosts, or shows, go to www.houseofmystery.com. Show is over for now. Was it as good for you as it was for me? Yeah. Good night. This has been a production of Something Weird Media. I'll be back. You've been listening to the House of Mystery radio show. To find out more about our guests, hosts, or shows, go to www.houseofmystery.com. Show is over for now. Was it as good for you as it was for me? Yeah. Good night. This has been a production of Something Weird Media. I'll be back.